All right, so we're going to the Gospel of Matthew. Go with me, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We are working through what many call the Sermon on the what? Does anybody know? The Sermon on the Mount. And that's because the, the context of this, Jesus is on a hillside and he's, he's surrounded by tons and tons of people. We've been walking through this. If you're just catching up with this series, feel free to, to check out the audio messages online, castlerockadventist.church. But here we are. We're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And uh, actually, last week, if you were here last week, we, we realized that Jesus calls us to be liberated by his law. In fact, if you look at verse 20, he makes this very uh, extreme, <laughs> to, at least to the audience that was there, it was a very extreme claim. It says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of who? What does your Bible say? Of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why we're calling this message Exceeding Righteousness. In other words, as we're following, understanding what the life of Jesus is all about, understanding what it is to be a disciple, to truly follow him, there's something about righteousness that needs to exceed what we currently see and know. Especially for, for this audience, it was what they currently saw in their current framework. That was the scribes and Pharisees. They kind of set the standard. They set the tone. And the way Jesus goes about it, describing and articulating what exceeding righteousness is, is he uses this phrase over and over. It's actually six times in verses 21 to 48. He says, you have heard it said to you, but I say to you this and this. All right? He does this six times. And so he gives six illustrations of, you've heard it said, but I say. Now you'll notice that every time he says, you've heard it said, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament. Now what is Jesus doing? Is he throwing out the Old Testament? Is he negating what the Old Testament has said? No, 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 no. If you were here last week, he's basically bringing it to the full. Remember? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, verse 18. I came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Okay? So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's kind of, uh, he's taking what they currently know, but he's bringing it to the max. He's bringing it to the full. And he does this six times over. The way that we're going to go about this today is we're actually going to couple them together. So we'll have three couplets, if you will, okay? Three pairs of this whole action. If you've heard it said, but I say. And we're going to find some common threads. And again, this is like, man, hopefully you've had breakfast, okay? Because <laughs> these are like wheat bread texts, okay? This is, this is stuff that you'll have to chew on, and I will admit we cannot cover, comprehensively cover, these verses in the short time that we have today. We're not going to turn over every stone. In fact, you may end up with more questions than you have answers by the end of this, this message. But we will get to, uh, we'll get to something called the heart of righteousness. The heart of righteousness. There's a quote here from a commentary written by George Knight. It says, uh, in verses 21 to 48 of Matthew chapter 5, which is what we're reading, Jesus provides us with how many illustrations? Six illustrations on the law's depth. That very depth points to heart righteousness, the need of forgiving grace when it is not kept in spirit, and the need of empowering grace if the law is really to be lived out in daily life. And so, we're going to look at exceeding righteousness. What are the things that make up exceeding righteousness in this life that is led by God? And as we look at that exceeding righteousness, that heart righteousness, each of us, I guarantee you, each of us is going to see a need for forgiving grace and also, did you notice that last phrase? Empowering grace. Okay? We're all good. So, so just, just be prepared. Just be prepared. Okay? Let, let's walk through the words of Jesus. In my Bible, these are red letters. And here we go. The first pair, uh, the, the first cluster of verses, 21 to 26, and also 27 to 30. I'm going to give you a challenge. Actually, take the next two and a half, three minutes. You can do this silently, or you can turn to the person next to you. Scan through these verses and see if you can find the overarching element of exceeding righteousness that's pointed out here. Like, what's the common theme? Jesus is going to address two different moral dynamics, but there's a common theme that he's getting to. So go ahead and scan through these verses, 21 to 26 and 27 to 30. See if you see that common element of exceeding righteousness. I'll give you two and a half, three minutes. Ready, set, go.
I'll give you another 90 seconds. If you need to start brainstorming with somebody, I don't see it, I don't see it, what's the common thread? Go ahead and start looking for that common thread. What is that overarching quality of righteousness there? Light bulbs turning on. There's some head scratching, <laughs> shoulder shrugging. Give you another 20 seconds. <clears throat> it's okay to talk out loud to your partner. Okay, okay. Should we talk about it? Let's talk a little bit about it. All right. Uh, so we have the dynamic of, what was it? You have heard it said to you, uh, this is verse 21, you have heard it said that it was, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. I'm just going to skip down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now, these are two very uh, different moral uh, imperatives, okay? But what was the common thread that you saw as Jesus was breaking the significance down? What did, what, what did you see that was common between the way he dealt with murder and the way he dealt with adultery? Okay, both are breaking the law, yeah? Both are a transgression of God's express commandments, okay? What else? What else? You'll be judged, okay? So you'll be held accountable to these things, all right? What else? Richard? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. So there's something about murder and there's something about adultery that God sees to an even greater extent. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay. Did you did you catch that? Yeah. So um, so as Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. Oh. Whew. I haven't done that, but have you felt this and thought this and, okay? All right, so exceeding righteousness, right? Exceeding righteousness. Here's the first dynamic that we're seeing. Exceeding righteousness starts where? It starts in the heart, okay? Let, let's think this through. Let's think this through. See, uh, in, in the case of murder, it's not just the extreme act of taking someone's physical life that violates God's law. In, What's more is that it's the motive, it's the thought, and even the small action that lends itself in that trajectory. Do you follow? And, and notice, well, what do you mean? Like what? Well, verse 22, he gives some examples. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, I'm reading from the New King James, by the way. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka. Okay, I, I don't know if you've ever said that to your... Anyways, this is a technical term, all right? Uh, this is like, just kind of... Well, well, you'll notice it follows up. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. These are all kinds of things. So anger. Uh, anger is an emotion that we're all familiar with, right? To varying uh, degrees. Lesser, greater, whatever. Um, but here's the thing. When anger is cherished rather than surrendered to God... Anger only feels more satisfied when it takes someone's life rather than gives it life. And let me, uh, again, I'm not just talking about physical life. Anger feels satisfied when you're able to take someone's dignity rather than give someone dignity. Anger feels satisfied when it's cherished. Anger feels satisfied when you're able to take someone's self-respect rather than give them more self-respect. Does that make sense? So you're, you're taking away, you're undercutting the very vital things that make for a satisfied life. Uh, how about cursing or name-calling? Again, we don't necessarily call each other raka, or at least 
I mean, yeah, that's not even part of our, our vocabulary. But the way that Jesus describes this, he says, even if you say you fool. Now, in the Old Testament, if you've ever read through Proverbs, you know, the wisdom sayings of the Proverbs, there's the wise man, there's also the fool, and there's the evil person, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But the fool is someone who has basically kind of turned their heart away from God. Uh, you think about Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And so by calling someone fool, you're basically saying, hey, they've, they've turned away from God. There's no hope for that individual. And so when we cast judgment and we, we end up accusing them, which means that we resemble more the accuser of the brethren rather than the savior of our brethren. Do you follow that? Yeah, so, so even these things, these small actions that lend itself to the trajectory, even if we haven't laid a hand on someone, we at heart are moving in that direction. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, these violations against God's law, they have a starting point. And that starting point isn't the overt act. That starting point is much deeper. It's much deeper. But it's not just avoiding the anger. It's not just avoiding the accusing that God is going after. Jesus actually wants us to, to, to move toward positive action to undo those things. Did you notice? Verse 23 to 24 uh, says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... So in other words, if you're coming to God with a sacrifice, recognizing his mercy and love for you, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, that you've kind of violated someone's respect, that you have offended someone else, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to who? To your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus isn't just saying, avoid anger, avoid the accusing. He's actually calling us to a positive action, not just what we negate, but actually what we do. And here in this case, it's building a bridge horizontally before we build that bridge vertically. When you think about it, a worshiper that is coming with the sacrifice is basically confessing to God, thank you for your love and mercy to me. But if if I'm doing that without a willingness to extend that love and mercy horizontally, then I'm making God's sacrifice a mere farce. I'm making it vain and good for nothing. So following this counsel, even this, this, this very simple counsel, reveals you know, that it would leave little room in our hearts for anger and accusing, and it would create more room in our hearts for accepting. Do you follow today? Yeah? So it starts in the heart. Exceeding righteousness starts in the heart. But how about that second example? You know, uh, again, the same idea. Verse 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery where? In his heart. In his heart. Again, adultery begins before, prior to the overt physical act. I want you to notice this quotation uh, from one of my favorite authors, Ellen White, from the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Page 60, it says this, that the season of temptation, when one falls into grievous sin, that season of temptation, it does not create the evil that is revealed. In other words, the genesis of that evil had, had, had another starting point. Okay? It does not create the evil that is revealed but only develops or makes manifest that which was hidden and latent in the heart. And then she quotes, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And that's from Proverbs 23, verse 7. Do you follow the train of thought there? Yeah. You know, that overt physical act, whether it be murder towards a brother <clears throat> or adultery, um, <clears throat> all of these things have a starting point before, before the overt physical act. And the critical point that I think Man, this, the, the, uh, this, the point of attack that the enemy has really gone after. Uh, notice again in verse 28. But I say to you that whoever looks, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, what should we do? It's like, okay, okay. So Jesus, I mean, he's... Uh, some might call this hyperbole. It's, uh, it's language that is supposed to be attention-grabbing. It's extreme. It's very extreme. But what I want us to see here is the point of attack that Jesus recognizes. It's the look. It's the eye. In fact, if you turn the chapter, and we'll get to this later on in our, 
a summer series, but if you go to chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, he says that the lamp of the body is the what? Is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. There's something about our eyes, something about the things that we allow our attention to dwell upon, the things that we allow our thoughts to be directed towards. This is what God, Jesus is talking about. Hey, your eyes are the point of spiritual attack. The enemy knows it, and he'll do all that he can to bring things before our eyes that will only cultivate thoughts of self and self-fulfillment as opposed to blessing to others. And I just want to make a very specific appeal to all of us, including those of us brothers in this place, okay? Men, young men, I mean, we, we are visual creatures. And we know this to be true. The industries around us know this to be true, okay? The devil has created multi-million dollar industries to take people down through their eyes. Through their eyes. And I want to appeal to all of us, including parents with young kids, we... We ought to be sentinels. We ought to be guardians over our eyes. Um, I don't know. There, there, there's a few psalms. There's, uh, Job is a good example. He says, I will not allow worthless things to pass before my eyes. He, he says that he makes a covenant with his eyes. Friends, we, we, we can do the same. We can do the same. When we're following Jesus, when we're living the life that is led by Jesus, realize that there is an enemy who would love to disrupt that following. And he'll use our eyes to do it. <clears throat> we need to commit our eyes, the focus of our thoughts to the Lord. Here's the honest truth. We cannot keep our eyes pure. We can't. We can't. But the Lord can. And, uh, and I think that's what, what we're talking about as far as plucking our eyes out. It's like offering our eyes to God and say, Hey God, you've got to preserve these for me. You've got to take the direction of my thoughts, the direction of, of my attention. Let's do all in our power to control what comes before our attention. Manipulate our environments. Realize that there are certain environments where our eyes will be drawn away. And in those moments where we know that we can't control what we see, we can't necessarily control who walks in front of us and things like that, we can learn to bounce our eyes. I, I, le- I picked that up from, from, a, uh, from someone else when I was in high school. He was just kind of mentoring me a little, and I, and I heard that phrase, just bounce your eyes. Just bounce your eyes. There are times that we cannot control the things that come. You're flipping through the channels. You're, you're watching a, a movie with, uh, with somebody. And, you know, if you don't have the power to, to fast forward or to pause or to whatever, bounce your eyes. We can all do that. We can all do that. <clears throat> and so, again, here, the, what we're talking about in this first pair of, of illustrations, you've heard it said, but I say to you, that exceeding righteousness, it starts where? It starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. All right. We're going to move on. We're going to move on. Next pair. And the next pair is in verses 31 to 32, and also verses 33 to 37. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to give you the activity again, but uh, let's just read through this together. I'll, I'll just say it right now. The connection between these two passages is not apparent. It's not. But let's read it. He's talking about marriage in one and then oaths in the other. It says verse 31. This is Matthew 5, verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Verse 33. Okay, so that was the first section there in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. In other words, those things don't belong to you, so don't swear by them. Verse 36, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Verse 37, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. All right. Some more wheat bread texts, yeah? <laughs> so as you're chewing through this, as you're, as you're just kind of scanning these things, what, what's the common thread? 
I would suggest that when it comes to exceeding righteousness, when we're talking about the marriage commitment and also these verbal oaths that people are making, we're talking about staying true through and through. Staying true through and through. I, I was trying to go with these rhyming things just to make it start in the heart, true through. Anyways, hope you appreciate that. Okay, <laughs> but, uh, but let's talk this through. Woo! Verse 31 and 32. What is Jesus saying about marriage and divorce? Okay. We live in a world where all of us are exposed to these dynamics, where we, we need to grapple with these things. And sometimes we're left to grapple with them without a clear biblical perspective. Now I'll tell you, verse 31 and 32, this is only one text of many that we could pull in to create a, a very thorough theology about marriage and divorce. Today, we're not going to do that, okay? <laughs> but I want to encourage you to, as you're asking questions and as you're thinking through these things, write them down so we can study them out together. But let's talk a little bit. There's a little bit of Old Testament context that you need to know. Jesus is referring to one of them. He says, hey, you've heard it said, verse 31. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Here's the thing. Back in the Old Testament, you you look up uh, a couple of texts here. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Also Deuteronomy 22, 22. Adultery in the Old Testament actually incurred capital punishment. Are you aware of that? Adultery. The marriage covenant was so serious in God's eyes. The other, thing that, uh, the other thing that required capital punishment was Sabbath breaking. I don't know if you realize that. The two tokens from the Garden of Eden, marriage and Sabbath, the things that God prized so deeply because it reveals the character of God more than anything else in this world can. It was, it was very serious. So, so adultery was a very serious thing. It incurred capital punishment. But there were marriages that could be dissolved according to Levitical law. This is in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where Moses says, hey, for other reasons of indecency or uncleanness, uh, and it doesn't get into specifics as to what indecency and uncleanness really means, but if a husband saw a need where that marriage commitment should be annulled, he could dissolve it through a certificate of divorce. In that way, that certificate of divorce was supposed to protect the other person, saying, hey, we've, we've broken off this commitment. It was not because of adultery, so you don't have to stone her or stone me. Okay? That's what the certificate of divorce is all about. But it, it would protect the person. It would recognize that there was some unfaithfulness in the vow, and it would allow for a dissolved union. Okay? Now, while those were good intentions, that was never God's ideal. Do you hear what I said? While those are good intentions, that was never God's ideal. Here's the thing. By the time of Jesus, marriage was becoming so disposable that people could dissolve marriages for any trivial reason. And so as Jesus is going, hey, you've heard it said about this whole certificate of divorce thing. He's, he's wanting to address the misuse of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so that's what he's getting at. And so how does he address the misuse of that particular certificate of divorce, as it says? One, he does it by narrowing the grounds for legitimate, legitimate divorce. And he says, okay, only adultery. But if you remember verses 27 to 30 that we just read, adultery starts way here. So adultery is so much more than committing the overt act. When Jesus says, hey, for adultery, it's those things that lend itself towards unfaithfulness to the marriage vow. And so, yeah, the perspective of Jesus, again, it's not just limited to that physical act. It must include habits of the heart, habits of the life that lend itself to unfaithfulness to your spouse. So he narrows the ground. He narrows the ground and says, okay, only, only adultery. But then also the second way that he addresses the misuse is that he uplifts the permanence of marriage. Notice what he said there in verse 32. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except this and this. uh, Sorry, it's at the end. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. In other words, that marriage, he's basically saying the the woman who is, is divorced for any other reason besides adultery she's still connected. She's, that marriage vow is still real. Jesus is highlighting the permanence of that marriage commitment. I don't know if that, does that track with you guys? Yeah. And so anyone who tries to engage that relationship is, is actually going around, around the vow, so to speak. And so 
here's the reality. When it comes to marriage, marriage is supposed to be a token from the Garden of Eden. It's supposed to be a token of God's unconditional love toward us. Unfailing, always loyal love toward us. And for, for marriage to be entered into with a key to the escape hatch, it totally undermines the beauty of the picture of God's love. We live in a culture today where, where uh, sometimes divorce is actually more common than, than lasting marriage. And I, I realize that, that many of us are coming from various experiences, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to present a comprehensive picture of marriage and divorce, but I do want to highlight that Jesus wants us to know how permanent the ideal of marriage is to be. And when we enter into marriage with a key to the escape hatch, we enter into a marriage not saying I do, but saying I might. And even worse yet, we let it deteriorate, deteriorate to, instead of I do, it's I did. But Jesus' love toward us is never I might or I did. Jesus' love toward you and me is always I do. And so Jesus is wanting us to know, hey, hey, uh, this, this connection, this commitment, you, it, it needs to stay true through and through, not just for your sake, but for the sake of what it proclaims about God's love. And so in connection with verse 33 to 37, you know, this whole thing about oaths and you let your yes be yes and no be no, it's a matter about being true in the most intimate of commitments that stands at the foundation of human relationships. Marriage, it's really the basis for how we relate to other people. You know, the, the marriage that you grew up seeing in your household or didn't see in your household, that totally impacts how we relate to one another. So really, uh, this, this one commitment, it actually has the, the power to change lives around you. And so Jesus wants us to know that it's a matter of being true to the most intimate of commitments, that truthfulness starts in the closest of commitments where the stakes count the most. Wheat bread text, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is stuff that Jesus wants us to hear so that we can continue to be led by him. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit more about how, how we stay true through and through in, in these oaths and stuff like that. Uh, notice what the IVP commentary says uh, regarding how people use their, their promises and how they kind of threw around oaths. It said, People swore by all sorts of things other than God to testify that their word was true. They reasoned that if they broke their oath based on any of these lesser things, and those lesser things include swearing by heaven, by God's throne, by earth, by your head, you know, things like that, right? That they reasoned that if they broke their oaths based on any of these lesser things, at least they were not bringing God's name into disrepute, right? It eventually became necessary for rabbis to decide which oaths were completely binding. Okay? Now, I grew up... My brother, he's four and a half years older than me. He, he, he was an 80s child through and through. And um, there was this phrase that we used to throw around. Psych! You remember that? Yeah? You'd, you'd, you'd extend your hand. Psych! You know? They'd go for a handshake. Or, um, he and I w would have this, like, you know... We'd kind of banter back and forth. We would claim one thing... And then we just say, oh, just, just, just kidding, you know. We would say that this was really what was going on, and he'd be misled to, to do that, thinking that that was true. And I said, oh, just kidding, just kidding, you know. And um, the only way we would start to know whether or not we were telling the truth is we would look each other in the eye and say, do you promise? I promise. And when I said I promise, I meant what I was saying. When he said I promise, I knew that he was, was speaking the truth. I have another friend um, <clears throat> that I kind of... You know, a senior year in high school, we started hanging out. And, and one thing that he would do, his name is Andrew. He would, he would second guess the claim that I was making. And he would have me stick out my thumb. And he'd say, like he'd touch my thumb to his thumb. And he'd say, if it's true, look me in the eye and say peanut butter three times. <laughs> peanut butter, peanut butter. You know? and, and it was always a way, like, in other words, we have this way of communicating with people that we kind of have to qualify whether or not we're telling the truth. We, we, we've grown up with this suspicion that people aren't telling us the truth. And we've actually grown up with the habit of not really giving off the full truth. Even if what we're saying, the content of what we're saying is true, we may even give a false impression about what is true. 
Yeah, we live in a tricky world. We live in a tricky world, and it has become hard to trust people. And so it was back then. It became hard to trust people, to, to know whether their commitments were really serious, whether their oaths, if they really expected to go through with this. This is where it connects to the marriage commitment and things like that. Do you really mean it? Is it I do or I might? You know? And in verse 37, it really gets to the heart of it. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. You don't need to qualify it with other, no, really, I promise, or peanut butter, peanut, you know, whatever. You don't need to qualify it. Just let it be what it is. Let truthfulness pervade all of your conversation. Let truthfulness pervade all of your commitments. Mean what you say and say what you mean and let it be, right? Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Jesus wants our communication and conversation to be so filled with integrity that no one ever has to second guess. No one ever has to second guess. Did he really mean it? Did she really mean it? So again, exceeding righteousness is about staying true through and through. So exceeding righteousness, it starts in the heart. Exceeding righteousness stays true through and through. And now let's get to the last pair here. The last uh, two illustrations of you've heard it said, but I say to you. And there it is in verse 38 to 42 and 43 to 48. I hope it's okay. We're just kind of plowing through these passages here in Matthew 5. And what we're going to find here is is Jesus takes this, uh, this idea of commitment and now he goes into, well, what about commitments to love each other even when it's hard? Okay, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So this is like outer garments and undergarments going on. Verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. This is actually a common thing under Roman oppression. Roman soldiers, they'd, they'd take it easy to impress upon people to help them with their burdens or to kind of just have them do whatever it is that they ask them to. And in verse 42, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your who? Love your enemies. And we'll stop right there. We'll continue through in just a moment. But what we're seeing about exceeding righteousness is something about how we respond to those who have ill intentions against us. And if uh, exceeding righteousness starts in the heart, if exceeding righteousness stays true through and through, here in this couplet, we're seeing that exceeding righteousness seeks redemption and not retaliation. Ooh, this is a hard word, right? That exceeding righteousness seeks redemption and not retaliation. We're dealing with people who mean us harm. You know, we talked about the fool. Okay, okay, so, so we won't accuse people of being total apostates, of being lost and without hope for grace. But then there are people that just outright want to get you, you know? <laughs> what do we do with those kinds of people? What do we do with the Roman oppressors and things like this? You know, for, for the people of Israel, as in, in Jesus' audience, they felt this spirit so deeply. A spirit of revenge and a spirit of retaliation. And you can understand why. They, they had no, they didn't experience freedom of themselves. They didn't have independent, they didn't have fireworks to set off like we do and to recognize, hey, we've got liberty in this land. No, Notice um, what Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings says about just Jesus' audience. It says, every day deepened in the hearts of the people the longing to cast off the Roman yoke. With sadness, Jesus looks into the upturned faces before him. He notes the spirit of what? The spirit of revenge that has stamped its evil imprint upon them and knows how bitterly the people long for power to crush their oppressors. Ooh. And again, we can say naturally, right? Yeah, they, they'd gone through it. They were experiencing some stuff that no one should ever have to experience. And sure, they would want this, okay, one day Messiah will come and we'll be in position of power so that we can crush them under our thumbs. You know, that kind of thing. But here's, here's the reality. Jesus is addressing that cherished spirit of revenge and retaliation. 
But you think about this, what does it say for us? If we are to cherish this kind of sentiment, oh, just wait till a day, you know, that kind of thing. If we are to cherish that spirit, that kind of sentiment, doesn't it say that we are just like them? Do you follow that? Doesn't it say that we are just, if the tables were turned, if the opportunity just arose, that if I had the position in power, I would do the very same thing to my oppressors that they are doing to me. That's the spirit of this world. That's the spirit of revenge and retaliation that Jesus is getting after. And it's not exceeding righteousness. Do you follow that? Whew. This, is, this, is, this is actually a, a kind of a big deal, okay? <laughs> because I think a lot of us can resonate, you know? We, we, we go through things, someone cuts us off, I'm going to speed up too. And I'm, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. We, we want to get back. <sighs> but this, this was a challenging thing to me to realize, wait a minute, cherishing that kind of spirit, it just means that I am hanging on to the very same thing that they are. Just waiting for my opportunity. Yikes. So that's what Jesus is getting to the heart of. That's why he says, hey, you've heard it said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? But Jesus is saying it's not about like responding to evil by evil. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Is it doormat passivism, right? Uh, Clint, you kind of mentioned this in the, in the talk about meekness and stuff. No, I, I don't think that's the alternative. Why? Because that allows the evil to perpetuate. You know? When evil is done to us, we don't just let down our boundaries and say, okay, let it happen. Why? Because it doesn't check evil. It doesn't do any good to, to negate the, the evil influence and impact. Okay, so then, so then what is the response? Well, the response, Jesus gives it to us. Verse 38, you've, I'm sorry, verse uh, 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. In other words, the intent is redemptive. When someone asks you to go one mile, go two. Make them feel ashamed for, whoa, whoa, you're actually doing more than, okay. It's a gentle rebuke. They've asked for your cloak, you give them more. It's a gentle rebuke to say, hey, your evil intent, it's actually harming, and it, it doesn't deserve to continue. Uh, notice in Romans 12, actually, I don't think I put this on the, on the screen here, but go with me to Romans 12. So you're in the book of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. Romans chapter 12. Just about five books after Matthew. Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church that has been established in Rome. And uh, yeah, in the heart of this foreign power. And so you can imagine that this sentiment of revenge and retaliation is, is ripe there, right? But uh, at the end of Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, if you're there, say Amen. All right, Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Or maybe your version says, do not take vengeance into your own hands, but rather give place to wrath. Find the right place for your anger. And where is that right place? It's in the hands of God. Don't cherish your anger. Surrender it to him. Kind of harping back to what we started with. In verse 21, etc. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. He's, he's quoting here from, from an Old Testament passage. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil how? With good. So this is the appropriate alternative. It's not just doormat passivism. It's not absolute passivism. This is what you would call active passivism. Actually re responding to the evil, not with like evil, but with good that reveals the character of God. <clears throat> this redemptive response is something that, that, it, that, that Jesus describes further. Let's go now to verse 45. The result of this redemptive response, sorry, we're back in Matthew chapter 5. Back in Matthew 5, notice how these powerful verses just wrap up. In verse 45, after kind of re re describing the redemptive response, he says, 
that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Did you notice? Verse 45 is continuing the sentence. Hey, so do this, do this, do this, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I'm looking over here at uh, Dave, surrounded by both Matthew and Mark. Can't, you know, and you can kind of see the resemblance is striking, right? This is the thing about fathers and sons. Um, I wanted to find a baby picture of myself so I could hold it up next to a baby picture of Jacob. But like, I don't know, I, I, I kind of like the fact that we look alike. Anyway. <laughs> but here's the thing, sons and fathers, what, what Jesus is saying, when you do this, you'll resemble somebody. And who? You'll resemble, who is it? Your father in heaven. Question, what kind of God do you resemble? As the Jews were listening to Jesus, they had a picture of God that may have been very different. And Jesus actually uses a very specific term when he's describing, hey, you're sons of somebody. You're resembling somebody when you do this. And what, what was the term that Jesus used? You're sons of your Father. Your Father in heaven. First time Jesus uses that in his teachings. Your Father in heaven. Father was a startling picture of God to that first century audience. Other religions portray the supreme being as being this, uh, this, this object to fear, not to love. Something that has to be appeased, a power that has to be attended to and appeased, rather than a tender, compassionate father who cares and who loves us. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, when you're doing this, this is the God that you're revealing. He's your father who tenderly loves you. And notice, the description keeps going. Verse 46, I'm sorry, verse 45, that, you're, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Verse 48, therefore, you shall be, what's the next word in your Bible? What is it? Perfect. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Here's the thing. This reality of the God who is our Father is a Father whose love isn't just limited to those who call themselves His children. It's a love that actually expresses itself to those who don't reciprocate love right back. What? This is a love that's revealed in nature and in the loving ways of God himself when he sustains all, not just the good, but the bad. Not just those who claim faith in him, but those who blatantly reject him. And yet, he sustains us with loving mercy all through and through. Romans 5.8 says, Even while we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we imitate the Father. When we respond redemptively, how does it go? Exceeding righteousness that seeks redemption and not retaliation. When, when, when this is our reality, when this is our mode of operation, we are actually resembling the Father. And notice again, uh, Clint, like you said, when you see a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, right? Verse 48, therefore, when you're doing all of these things, in the flow of this context, we've, we've had conversations maybe um, with others, like, what does it mean to be perfect? Can we ever be perfect? Oh, I'm never going to be perfect. But Jesus says, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Question, what then is perfection in Jesus' perspective? It's revealing the kind of selfless love that seeks redemption and not retaliation. In fact, the parallel verse, you can write this down, Luke chapter 6, verse 36. It's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And the way he says this very sentence is, you shall be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Okay? So when we're talking about perfection, the fullness, the complete maturity of someone who is living the life that is led by God. It's someone who has learned to seek redemption and not retaliation. To be perfect as the Father is to love others selflessly, irregardless of whether or not there is reciprocation in response, whether or not it's returned. The life that is led by God <clears throat> is a life of exceeding righteousness, and we've seen it. It's exceeding righteousness that starts in the heart. It's exceeding righteousness that stays true and through and through. 
It's exceeding righteousness. Oh, let's see here. Ah, okay. It's exceeding righteousness that uh, seeks redemption and not retaliation. And here's a powerful quote here. Because I want us to ask this question now as we start winding this down. We see exceeding righteousness. We see its way up there. And it's definitely not here. Where in the world does this become our personal experience? How in the world do we actually embrace righteousness where right relationship and right doing is something that flows naturally from the inside out? And here again, quoting from the Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. Every child lives by the life of his father. Just think about that. Every child lives by the life of his father. In other words, the child's life is contingent upon the father's life. Right? Um, there, there would be no child had there been no, no parent figure in that, in that equation. If you are God's children, begotten by his spirit, you live by the life of God. Just let that sink in. If you are God, if you are God's children, begotten by His Spirit, you live by the life of God. That life in you, in other words, God's life, that life in you will produce the same character and manifest the same works as it did in Him. The command, you shall be perfect even as your Father in Heaven is perfect, is actually a promise. Think about that. He says, you shall be, okay, so, so He's actually I mean, you can take that as an imperative. You can take that as instruction. Okay, I need to be perfect, okay? But notice how he says it. Therefore, you shall be perfect. Like, this will be the case, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, that command is assumed that he actually is your Father. In that command, there's a promise that this God actually is your Father. And that you are his Son. You are are his daughter. So he's not just saying, all right, guys, good luck. Jump a little higher. You'll be perfect eventually. No, no, no. What he's saying is, hey, this is going to be you when you are mine. Look again, look again. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's a promise in the command. So this idea of revealing exceeding righteousness in our life, oh, this could never happen. It will only happen as we become his children. It will only happen as he becomes our father. The life that is led by God reveals exceeding righteousness. It's an exceeding righteousness that starts in the heart, stays true through and through, and seeks redemption and not retaliation. And I said this at the beginning. That after we study all this stuff, each of us is going to feel the need for forgiving grace. <laughs> you remember this? And we're all going to feel the need for empowering grace. Are you sensing that today? Are you sensing that? This heart righteousness that is revealed in the life of those who are led by Jesus. It's something that you and I could never attain to, that you and I could never accomplish or perform in and of ourselves. And so we need forgiving grace because we know we've violated. We, we need empowering grace because we know we cannot do it on our own. And so a simple appeal, as we wind this down, uh, two simple appeals. One is this. <clears throat> there's something here that as you've been reading, as we've been studying, there's something here that the Word is calling you to confess to God. To confess and to repent of. To turn from, to realize that this is something that you've cherished. And if I'm to persist in following Jesus, then it's not compatible with that relationship. Whether it be anger or lust, whether it be uh, dishonesty and uh, being far from integrity, whether it be retaliating and, and cherishing a spirit of revenge, whatever the case, there's something here that the Word of God is just bringing to, to your awareness and saying, man, this is something I need to confess and repent of. And I want to just share with you a promise. If, if that's you today, that the promise of, of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, one, to forgive us our sins, and two, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're realizing, man, exceeding righteousness is not my story, okay? I need to be cleansed of all of that. If that's you today, I just want to appeal to you. Embrace God's forgiving grace. Embrace this promise 
As we wrap up, just, I mean, would you just raise your hand to heaven and say, yeah, I need forgiving grace today. I want to, I, I realize the heart need. I, I need to confess that today. Amen. Amen. Second appeal is simply this, that not just a, an appeal for forgiving grace, but an appeal for empowering grace. And you're realizing, man, I know where I need to be and I know where I am. And this is not something I can do in and of myself. But I just want to share this promise in John chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, I like how the King James writes this. But as many as received him, speaking about Jesus, when we receive Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God or daughters of God, even to them that believe on his name. Remember, you will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How do I enter that childlike relationship with God? It's as we receive Jesus. It's as we receive him and believe in his name. He extends to us empowering grace that makes us resemble the Father, that makes us a chip off the old block. We don't have exceeding righteousness, but he does. And when we receive Jesus, he actually gives us, I love that, the power to become. I like that process, the process that's implied there, to become the sons of God. So receive Jesus today. You raised your hand to receive forgiving grace. How many of you long for empowering grace today? You want to receive Jesus? Yeah, there's nothing. Why not, right? Why not? He's extending this to us. And as just, just now I'm going to invite our song team to come up, and we're going to sing this song, this chorus, Take My Life. And, and I encourage you to sing this as a prayer that God truly would take your heart, your mind, your will, and make it just like his. Won't you stand with us as we sing together?